You're listening to the Successful Executive Podcast with John Bellino. I want to thank all of you for listening in this afternoon uh, to the Successful Executive Podcast interview. We're going to be speaking with Adam Nibrugi, who is a director at Guide One Insurance. Good afternoon, Adam. How are you doing this afternoon? Doing well. Thanks. Awesome. Awesome. So before we get started, for those listeners who may not have heard of Guide One Insurance, and admittedly, I asked you the same question when you uh, went to, the, to that company. Um, what, what, what do you guys specialize in? What's your niche? Um, yeah, so we're a mutual insurance company. Uh, we um, largely focus on uh, insuring churches um, throughout the country through uh, sort of commercial insurance, so the property and the general liability and sort of umbrella and workers' comp that is associated with churches and you know the organizations surrounding them. Um, we also do a little bit in sort of, or just launched a small business policy. So a bot product that is, you know, starting to grow. And, um, there's also a a offshoot of just general program business that, um, has been growing to sort of diversify us into sort of non-property exposures. Okay. Okay. Interesting. That's quite a niche. Yeah, there's, uh, there's about three companies that really specialize in. Um, oh, really? Mutual, um, which uh, is probably our biggest competitor, um, sort of size-wise. There, but they write through direct agency relationships, so their agents work directly for them. And then okay. there's Guide One and, and Brotherhood, and. Guide One and Brotherhood are also the, the other two big carriers in churches in the church space. And uh, they we both work through these sort of independent agent distribution channels in, in um, sort of the insurance business. Interesting. When did Guide One uh, launch? How old is the company? <clears throat> Ooh, the exact age, I'm not sure. It's about 70 years old. Uh, oh, no kidding. Okay. So, okay. It, you know. I guess I would put it. You're not a rookie in this space. Yeah, so sort of they've been around since like the 1950s. Um, awesome. Started, That's awesome. you know, here in Des Moines, Iowa, and has grown to be the company that is about you know, 500 million dollars in revenue. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, great. Well, great. Well, thanks for sharing that. Sure. So, how how did you get started in? your industry or in the career field? Did you pursue actuarial science in college or were you pursuing something else and fell into it or like what happened? Yeah. I mean, I had no intentions of being an actuary. Um, uh, <laughs> Why is that the most popular answer I receive? From actuaries? Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. Some it of is it is, I mean, I can, I can claim that I didn't, you know, a lot of actuaries claim that they didn't know about the profession. And once they learned about it, then they were all in. I knew about the profession. I actually had no intention of being one. Um, a friend of mine's dad growing up was a life actuary, and, and uh, um, he's maybe a little bit of your classic actuary, right? And he he's very knowledgeable, very technical, and and I, I always thought, oh, he's one of the smart people in the world, right? Um, and so I always had a lot of 
knowledge of the profession sort of growing up and but i i never had a conversation with him and thought yeah that's me right i mean like that's what i want to do for a living he just seemed like a really <laughs> smart guy who i respected um what i originally went what i i got in the business maybe for uh very different reasons than i think a lot of other actors um i went to school um out of high school, I went to Indiana University, and my aspirations were um, more financial in in nature. I I, I studied financial economics um, and mathematics, and I was going down the path of getting into sort of investment banking or possibly my PhD um, and in economics, and sort of living that more. Um, financially driven life than, than sort of an, you know, I was never looking at like retail banking. I was looking at like more investment banking and, you know, federal reserve type jobs. Um, wow. and then wow. I started down that path. Um, some people started saying, or, uh, people asked or that I should look into sort of, um, trading and commodities trading, which sounded interesting. So I took an internship um, uh, with a commodities trading firm, went over, it was in London, I went over to London and I hated it. Um, wow. It was just, uh, it was the almost the exact opposite of what I expected, right? I mean, I, I enjoy... Um, two things is what I've found as I've gotten older. The two things that I really enjoy is I really like making things efficient. And I like, um, you know, a part of that was always sort of looking at the math and, and being analytical around how we approach problems. Um, okay. When I met with traders, efficiency didn't matter then. And I don't think I met a single trader who was analytical. Uh, they were gamblers. Um, oh yes. And and I think. <laughs> yeah, and, and they they were very good at it. It's not, but it just wasn't me. And so I went back and and so then it was very clear that if I'm going to do this financial stuff, it's not going to be in. You know, that's the sort of job people said, "Hey, go do this because you don't have to go get your PhD." So consider it. You know, and back and I'm like, I'm definitely not doing that. So now the choice started forming, like for me individually, like go on and get your PhD in economics and you know head down sort of that economic world and and you know get into the the big banking and sort of hedge fund world and things like that. Um, and that's a a really tricky world to break into. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of it's around getting your PhD from the right school and, and, uh, you know, just through conversation with my dad and, and, and mom, they, they effectively said, uh, you know, did you ever like what you're describing, like what you want to do, you know, sounds pretty much like what actuaries do. They just do it for insurance companies instead of for banks. And, yeah. you know, my dad and you know he's an engineer by trade said 
he always advised me to be in a profession where you control your outcomes and, you know, getting accepted into a school is, you know, not that it's completely outside of your control, but, you know, getting accepted is hard and then getting your PhD, a lot of it's around the professors sort of like what you do, right? Do they like your research? Do they agree with it? And he said, look, becoming an actuary, it's about getting through the exams and that's something yeah. you control. You just have to prove to people and get your credentials and then you're good. Then you're in the field. Right. And then it's about what you do on the job and whether the company values it. And so I said, all right, fine. That makes sense. I'll look into it. I, I start looking into it. And before you know it, I was like, yep, this is, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and so really what attracted to me, I mean, I think a lot of people get attracted to it for the math and I definitely have the aptitude. I can do the math. I'm technically sound. Um, but what really got me into it was it's real. I mean, insurance, especially commercial insurance, which is where my interest lied. I, I wasn't as interested in the other parts of the actual world. Um, I mean, I'm effectively, um, I get to play all the economic games, right? There's large account businesses where it's very large transaction and it's, you know, big deals and negotiations, the primary driver, um, all the way down, you know, operating very much the way like a Boeing type company would do its deals. Um, all the way down to, you know, um, you know, personal auto, which is a lot more like a retail banking or a retail store. It's just, it's about generating transactions. It's around, you know, getting the, the processing and the systems to run and they kind of run themselves if you're doing it right. And so you've oh, got yeah. every type of business model that exists and the entire breadth of the U.S. economy. And I guess in a lot of, lot of aspects of the world economy, um, but maybe not as much, but definitely the U.S. economy, commercial insurance is a part of it. So you get exposure to every aspect of the U.S. economy. And to me, that was sort of a big driver of why I got in the profession. I, I didn't feel like I had to pick a business or a business or an industry. I was like, well, I will get involved with, you know, same reason I wanted to get into banking and economics was I didn't want to really pick like, ooh, I want to get into manufacturing or I want to get into oil and gas. And, you know, I, I wanted to be able to bounce around and, you know, play in all of the different aspects of the economy. So that's kind of what led me to the profession. That's interesting. That's interesting. Now, how many how many um, companies have you worked for in your career at this point? Um, as an actuary, I've worked for three. Um, uh, I worked okay. for um, Travelers initially. Uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, and and I went to London for a little bit, worked with Thur Lloyd's operations in UK and European operations. Um, I think I was there for six years ish. Were you really? Yeah, wow. I think I went, I I went through the training program for three or four years, and then I spent um, two years building the reserving and. Um, the reserving platform, and then I jumped into some large account pricing areas um, in construction okay. and did a 
little stint with international pricing. Um, and then um, we were about ready to have our first child and uh, kind of, I don't know, maybe coincidence or maybe I actually do get recruited a lot because there's we're a high demand profession. Maybe it's because I was having my son, or my son was about to be born that we uh, I was more open to to recruiting calls. But some of the actuaries who I had worked with at um, Travelers had left and started um, to build a little pocket of people at um, CNA in Chicago. Um, okay, they uh, had a um, on the pricing side a small business portfolio that. You know, they weren't happy with the results and they wanted someone to come in and help them sort of develop the portfolio management and exposure management to to sort of get the results in the place that they want it. So that sounded interesting. Um, I think jumped over, um, spent five years doing that. And then um, there was a new appointed actuary on the reserving side and you wanted to changed the culture around how reserving was done and, and what CNA got out of reserving. And he asked me to come over and, you know, get back to sort of what I'd done previously at Travelers, which was built systems. And, you know, he asked me to help, you know, evaluate the systems and processes they had in place and also take over the, the management of the liability reserves for CNA. So I did that for, Two and a half years, and then uh, just recently, I mean, I, I think I've been with Guide One for three months now. Um, okay. I, a colleague of mine and, and friend, really, uh, at CNA, um, came over to Guide One, and you know, for the better part of six months, called me periodically and just sort of asked me to look at and think around positions. And initially, I said, you know, I'm happy. I'm, I'm doing well at CNA and I don't feel a strong need to move on. Um, but as, you know, sort of time progressed, uh, eventually, you know, I picked up the phone and gave him a call back and said, you know what, maybe it's time for a change. I've been doing this for a while. And uh, sort of <laughs> we sat around and got to talking and before, you know, one thing led to another, I ended up in Des Moines. And, you know, I think of all the things that, People say, they, you know, to tell you to, there's a lot of people who tell you to plan your careers or, you know, set goals. And um, I guess, I don't know that I've taken a step so far in my career that was planned. Um, I think all of them have been a circumstance of opportunities. Okay. Okay. So how many roles would you say you've had across your career with all these different companies? Um... A lot. I mean, it sounds that way. Uh, I, I would probably a more stable force. I mean, there's a little bit of, um, you know, I'd say for the last, you know, probably ten years, I've been in probably a role every two years. I, you know, oh, wow. position I've been, I've been two to three years. I, I'm sort of in the role. Um, for the, you know, first, you know, five or six years of my career, I must have been in, I 
probably more roles than I can count. I mean, uh, the training program put that I was at, at Travelers, I was in at least four roles through that. And then when I left, I was in probably another four roles. I mean, most of them lasted a year to a year and a half. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think all told, I'd probably tally them up to close to 10 different positions that I've held um, over the 15 years I've been working. Wow. Was there so, anything unique about any of the roles in particular? Um. Like any any of them that really stand out? I think the role that I feel like I individually um, I, there are two roles I'd say individually have done for me as an individual did my um, did me the greatest service for for helping me understand um, what an actuary is and like what they really do and and the role they play for institutions um uh, my my time in sort of a um, small business where you know a lot of that job was learning how the business is really sold why is it sold how do you affect um sort of the outcomes of the transactions and um, I think a lot of actuaries and, you know, I think probably a lot of executives in all disciplines have a tendency to make it about sort of metrics, right? I mean, we get we get trained into sort of, well, what's the price and sort of philosophical things like elasticity and competitive markets and things like that. And, you know, I think I don't, I'd started throughout the course of my career starting to sort of be, I don't know, disillusioned is the right word, but become less and less a believer of the invisible hand, right? That the, the, okay. the markets are, you know, human behaviors maybe over a long enough time horizon, maybe the invisible hand works, but over short horizons, even something with as much information as sort of like U.S. stock market is not accurately valued, right? Uh-huh. It, it might be unbiased. We don't know whether it's high or low, but it's not accurate. You know, the value of a stock today is not accurate to its real value. You know, the value of the whole economy, right? So if we can't get that right, why do we think we can get the pricing of an insurance product right? Right? The individual policy. And there's a lot of actuaries who, who believe that there's like an accurate price to be charged. And that if you okay. don't have it right, then, you know, you'll either underperform or be adversely selected against. And, you know, these things will happen. And my experience in that role showed me that that can happen. And it's absolutely a part of it. But more than anything, this is an operations business. It's what is your relationship with the agents? What do they value? Um or the customers, if you're selling directly to the customers. But it's really no different than any other business. And it's mostly around, you know, insurance is not a highly valued product. Um, it's more of like buying toilet paper, right? Everybody's got to do it. 
Nobody I really heard you put wants that way to. before. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, everyone's got it, right? I mean, everyone's got homeowners insurance, but nobody values it. I mean, maybe a nice way to say it's, it's like your mortgage. It. Right. Or your mortgage. Like, everybody wants a mortgage, but nobody really values it, right? Like, if you sit down and really talk to someone who's struggling to get a mortgage, they'll say, man, it's so hard to get a mortgage and they'll complain, but they don't appreciate the value of sort of someone just lent you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like that's a, it's a financial miracle, really. Um, you know, you turn back time and people weren't without the creation of mortgages, people weren't able to do that without exactly. the creation of insurance. Mortgages wouldn't exist. No one would lend you that much money without insurance. So they all intertwine. So while people should value it, the reality is people have become desensitized or don't really under appreciate it. And I don't suspect it's going to change. I mean, people like it's more like it's sort of like indoor plumbing or, or toilet paper. Like people don't value that until they realize how lucky they are to have it. Yeah. Right? If, I mean, like we all in the United States have become very desensitized to the state of our existence. It's natural, um, uh -huh. but insurance is—is is, I mean, that's what we're doing. We're selling something that everybody needs. Everybody kind of wants it, right? I mean, but you almost have to—you got to make it easy for them. You got to yeah. either. Or you've got to make them, put them in a position where they understand the value. And and that's really a game depending on who you're selling to, right? I mean, to like small business where I was, we didn't spend any time trying to explain the value. Because most small business owners, it would be more energy to explain the value to them than the selling of the policy. Okay. Uh, we we made it easy. You know, the, the goal in that, that market is to make it, well, when you go get your mortgage... To, or your your business loan, get there, right? You want to be present at that transaction to to be the insurance product that's offered to them. Okay. If you make it easy, they pick you. Yeah. Yeah. If you start working with you know a big you know mid sized to large insurance company, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, you know manufacturer or construction company, well now. They have options, right? They can self-insure. They can do all these different things. Well, getting into that business is really around explaining to them the value of what insurance can do to help them become more profitable, more stable, and you know, manage their work comp and all that kind of stuff. So how you sell and the role of an actuary in setting up sort of the pricing and evaluation of the product has as much to do with understanding as how the product sold than the actual accounting of claims or expected claims that will pay out. I mean, that's important, but that's far more who's buying your product than, you know, you know, sort of risk classification. Yes. And it's so interesting. Took, um, <clears throat> no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Um, most people think wealthy people don't buy that much insurance but they're surprised to hear that wealthy people do buy it because wealthy people, although they have the ability in many cases to self-insure, for pennies on the dollar, they can 
protect what they see as valuable, and they also know what time, what type of effort and time it went into obtaining whatever it is that they deem valuable. Right. And uh, so you're absolutely right. So at, at at some there's some level where the policy goes from needing to be sold to the policy being um, requested. Does that make sense? Yeah, I agree. I, I think for every type of product, whether it be you know commercial insurance is my expertise. It you know it happens with size and scale, which on the personal insurance size is you know wealth, right? I mean, like if you're trying to create wealth and you're going to borrow money, people are going to require you to get insurance, right? Or absolutely, you don't have any income. If something happens to you, you need you know you don't have assets that your family is going to be taking care of for life insurance. Well, if I was, you know, independently wealthy, um, the issues of insurance have changed and now I value it. It's not necessarily required, but there are still very good reasons to have insurance. And it's a lot more around the protection of what I've got. That's right. right? I want and, to keep what I have. Yeah. And so uh, I think how you market people changes. So I, I, I mean, to me, that was a big eye-opening experience, and there's a whole host of things that led me to that conclusion um, that are very mm -hmm. detailed and technical as an actuary that uh, maybe aren't as important for the, for this conversation. But that was one. The other, which uh, was the role, maybe a couple preceding, was when I built the reserving platform um, at Travelers. Is I, you know, going through sort of the exams and, and seeing stuff as an actuary, you learn a lot around regulation. You learn a lot around financial reporting. Um, but, you know, I, I think a lot of actuaries enter their jobs thinking their job is to estimate the ultimate cost of, a, of, of loss for an insurance company. Um, and I think that's kind of true. <laughs> I mean, like, that is sort of what is the essence of, of sort of the, the core liability. But what I really learned going through that is two things. One, that's an unknown number and to us at any point in time. Um, but it will ultimately be known. Right? So I think... A lot of actuaries think when they put up a reserve that there's some cash that actually gets put on the balance sheet or that there's money being held against it. Like, But it's not. It's, it's, it's a, you know, from a true accounting perspective, it's, it's just an account's payable, right? And it's an estimate of an account's payable. Mm -hmm. And so what we actually pay will be what we pay, right? I mean, like, actuaries have no involvement in that. You know, the claims will happen and, and, and Guide One or any other institution will pay them. Uh, so we don't actually have any input in that. I mean, yes, we can partner with claims and, and underwriting and, you know, help give them information so that they can do those things maybe cheaper or remove claims from our exposure. But, you know, that, that, that ship's kind of already sailed when we're setting the, li the liability. What we're really doing is we're accountants, right? I mean, actuaries hate that. They like to say that there's something special, but really we're just a very specialized accountant. 
we're <laughs> our responsibility is to provide an opinion on a very complex liability mm-hmm. that goes on the balance sheet of an insurance company. And there is no right number. So a lot of actuaries think that they can estimate or they can tell you what the number should be held is. And I think, you know, anyone who's really spent a lot of time trying to do it or trying to manage that estimate would find that there's a very large reasonable range. And what the actuary should be focused on a lot more is not what's the right number, but what are the numbers that the management of the company can hold and be reasonable? And then how does that interact with sort of their capital and surplus positions? And, Mm -hmm. you know, what risk do they take based on how they set the liabilities, right? I mean, if they set a lower liability and, you know, they take more out as cash and capital, well, now they've got more cash and capital. They can make income, whatever. But if the actual payments end up being something materially different, they might need to go back and pull that cash back out. Mm-hmm. Um, or... Mm-hmm take a charge against their capital base. And, well, I mean, that would be a bad strategy because you pay taxes when you create income and then when you go grab capital, you don't pay the, like, you don't get those taxes back. Yeah. Um, So, there's... That's a one-way street. Right. And the IRS is very mindful of this, so they don't like us to over-reserve our liabilities. They're watching that very closely. Um, on the flip side, the Department of Insurances are watching to make sure that we don't get under-reserved. Mm-hmm. Because if our reserves get too thin, I mean, whatever the actual payments are, we need to be able to fulfill them. Through Absolutely. the liability, yes. But really, the truth is, it's against the assets the company holds. Not the surplus or capital, but against the assets. The assets have to be enough to pay off the liabilities, and they're watching to make sure that's true. So, you know, that is what they're primarily concerned around. And, you know, going through building all those systems, seeing the regulation, watching it, you start to realize that, or, or I came to the realization, I don't know if everyone would who went through this experience, that we're... Our roles are a lot more uh, financial management roles and financial advisor roles than mm-hmm. anything. Like a good reserving actuary is spending a lot less time, um, in my opinion, trying to estimate the ultimate cost of claims. Um, because even A, they don't know it and there's no way they can. Um, but B, you know, it'll be what it is, right? I mean, like, so if we can speed up that process, if you can get that information faster, like, hopefully your claim department's getting better at getting things done faster. So you need less and less of an actual liability on your balance sheet, and we need to keep those things in sync. But the faster you can get claims closed out and paid, the less you even need actuaries, which if the world ever got efficient enough, right, then the time between event and claim and payment, if that was like an instantaneous thing, 
you really don't need an, an actuary. And you can already see some businesses where the technology is starting to, to do that. I mean, progressive insurance has virtually no actuaries on staff. They, really? They, yeah. They, I mean, with the, the time between when claims occur and with technology, I mean, they've, they've built into the claim operations the ability for people to take pictures and report them and they can get estimates done. Like, like the aggregate cost of the claims, they don't have a lot of outstanding liabilities that they need to put this number on their balance sheet to say, well, something's going to happen down the road. So the vast majority of their claim operations are so efficient, so fast, that they just don't need a lot of actuarial support. They still have a couple to, to make sure that the reserves held in total are, um, are reasonable accounting for what may be paid in the future, but it's you know for a company their size, like they have hardly any. And why don't more companies follow that path? Um, because it depends on the insurance, right? I mean, like they play very specifically in a you know sort of a niche market, which is auto insurance, mm -hmm. which you know the technology with cars is getting to the point where when accidents happen, a lot of them have computer chips that they can, I mean, even send things to like through OnStar. So you don't even necessarily even need to know that it, um, they don't even have to report claims sometimes now. Uh, I mean, when claims happen. The car reports itself to right. a degree. Right. So some of it is the technology associated with it. Um, but, you know, I think Liability insurance, for example, like that, that's hard, right? If someone slips and falls in your store or comes to your office to, you know, buy some some financial products from you, they might slip and fall. They don't tell you if they're going to sue you right away. No. So, I mean, the recording of that can can technology get better to the, know that the incident happened? Yes. Can claims get faster? Yes. But to a certain extent the nature of our legal system is always going to be an inhibitor on the liability side. On mm -hmm. the on the physical damage property side, that stuff can get, I mean, um, to sort of coin a sort of a, a catchphrase, you know, the Internet of Things will make a lot of insurance stuff um, a lot faster in reporting if technology is leveraged. And and it looks like mm -hmm. it will be. I mean, people are putting sensors in their thermometers. So if there's a fire in your house, it'll call the de fire department for you, right? And, right. you know, generally those don't have reporting lags because when people's houses burn down, they generally call their insurance company pretty fast. But there are a lot of things like, you know, hail damage where, you know, people don't call or historically haven't called and they wait until there's a major storm and then they call you. Well, now with sort of Doppler radar and, and storm imaging, we know where hailstorms happen. And mm -hmm. our claim departments will actively call our policyholders and ask if they had hail damage from the storm. And, you know, 
try to drive things to resolution faster. So as technology gets better, you know, the time lag or the 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 need for for an actuary to produce estimates on certain types of claims is diminishing. Because okay. by the time we put up a liability on the quarterly balance sheet or annual balance sheet, they're likely already, you know, in the claim adjuster's desk and they're already setting a reserve far more accurate than somebody in a corporate home office can do in aggregate, right? I mean, they're actually looking at the individual claims. Right. Right. Interesting. Interesting. So those are the two roles yeah. that really shaped me. <laughs> and I can I can see why. Well, you, know, you and I haven't known each other that long, but one of the things that I've come to find unique is um, you, you you are very detailed, but detailed on the big picture and then making the big picture, narrowing it down into small scopes and the rationale behind those. That makes sense? Uh, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's probably the most succinct way that people have used it because I get conflicting stories about me, right? When you, over my career, colleagues have come to me and said, man, you're so detail-oriented. And then I've had other people say, man, you're all big picture. You don't track the details at all. And I think both are true. <laughs> I mean, like, I, yeah, it, it depends yeah, on yeah. what. <laughs> so, so I think that's a, a good way to say how I would. I, I think you characterize me as accurately and sort of a, a catchphrase as, uh, as I would say anyone I've heard before, right? Which is, yes, I think the details do matter, and I think if you don't know them, you shouldn't really be issuing an opinion. And you're, I, but you're to curious me, where those details, like you're 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 curious and then studying where those details are coming from. That's yeah. what I mean by the big picture. You know yeah. what I mean? And I think and the details the only now around assumptions made on those. That, that's what I mean. Yes. That's and I, I think mean. you need to know enough details to be effective, right? I mean, like, oh, I don't doubt. need to know everything, but you better know enough to be informed. Right. And and yeah. to me, I don't, you know, like, I don't exactly know how OnStar works. And there are more no, details <laughs> to that than, than I'm ever going to learn. But for me sure. to, if, if I got in a position where I had to, you know, manage a personal auto claim operation or, or the liability surrounding it, I would probably need a little bit more, a little bit more than what I know now, but how does that work or how does that technology work? I don't need to know exact details, but I need to know how it is going. I need to know enough details to know how it's going to affect what my company and what my team needs to do. And and being good at drawing that line is hard, right? But to me, that's that's what I try really, I try to be very mindful of not getting too high level where I'm actually sort of ignorant and making bad decisions. But I got to be careful not to go so deep that I don't ever make a decision or I don't drive direction. And that's right. and sort right. of the endless game of leadership, right? I mean, that's a big part of it. Sure. Sure. That's true. That's true. You know, I've got 
I've got a number of other questions to ask you, and we're right at our time that I usually um, will uh, – what, what, what I'd like to do, if you're open to it, is do another interview with you. And sure. Ask you some of the other questions that I have, because the answers that you're providing, I think, are valuable, uh, not only to people who are in the business, but people who are executives in the business. Um, I think for a lot of people, once they hit their 50s, they start to question, Am I, do I want to keep doing this or not? Right. And sometimes they need a reminder of hey, what, what drew me to this career path in the first place? What made me successful in this career path? You know, yeah. those types of things. Yeah. Um, would, you be open to, would you be open to doing that? Absolutely, yeah. Awesome, awesome. So let's do this. Um, what I'm going to do is uh, we'll set up another time offline, I'll call you. We'll figure okay. out another time. And we'll do Adam Nabrugi uh, part two. Sounds good. And for some reason, anyone who knows me and, and, and listens to this will not be surprised that I couldn't do it in one part. <laughs> well, this was kind of set up where I have a lot of questions, but again, every, nobody's the same. Everybody's unique, but you're, you know, this is something I tell everybody. And I remind you as well, what you do for a living as an actuary is fairly invisible. Most people do not have any idea what it's about. You probably would not have had any idea what it was about until your friend's father was doing it. Right. It's the same situation for me. I had no idea that that was even a job, right. except a friend of my sister's in our neighborhood, her dad was an actuary for travelers. And okay. Like, well, what in the world is an actuary? And I think I was probably 10 years old when I was asking that question. Yeah. And my parents told me what it was. So uh, I grew up in Connecticut, where right. in Hartford, in the Hartford area, um, I mean, how many insurance companies are there aside from travelers? <laughs> you right. Know? It's um, kind of the so insurance capital of the United States. <laughs> Yes, it is. And yet, interestingly enough, uh, people are ignorant, not intentionally. Uh, they just have no idea that this even exists. Okay? Yeah, pretty, pretty niche uh, job. It is. And it's, it's essential because, like you said, if you look at some of the things that we as Americans enjoy and other people in Western cultures enjoy, uh, like a mortgage, okay, or a car, uh, or borrowing money for various things, that's, that's not possible without having a backup plan in case something goes wrong. And yeah. uh, you, you put that well, because again, people do not think about that, you know? So, so what, I wanna, what I wanna do then is I will we'll follow up with this uh, to set up another time, like I said, for Nubrigi 2, Okay, and okay. I want to thank you for your very generous time this afternoon, sharing your successes and insight into a profession that, in my opinion, again, as I said, remains largely anonymous. 
with the public's understanding. And uh, as you know, I am always looking to get connected with smart people like yourself in the industry who might be interested in appearing on the Successful Executive Podcast. And uh, I always welcome introductions by email to anyone in your own network who might yeah. be a fit for an equal interview like this. All right? All right. Thank you, Adam. The Successful Executive Podcast is hosted by John Bellino. John helps successful executives create a plan for lifetime income by addressing the five key areas that impact your wealth and retirement. To discover what these five key areas are and how to create a plan for each one, visit johnjbellino.com slash webinar for a complimentary video presentation. Material discussed is meant for general informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. The Living Balance Sheet and the Living Balance Sheet logo are service marks of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian. New York, New York. Copyright 2005 to 2019, Guardian. John Bellino is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. OSJ 14021 Metropolis Avenue, Fort Myers, Florida, 33912, 239-561-2900. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Alliance Financial Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or Alliance Financial Group, and opinions stated are their own.